Amen. And uh, before we start in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And I'd like for us to just read a verse there and kind of set a, um, a biblical context for the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, these are the words of Jesus. He is speaking in verse 3. It says, And said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, Solomon had a problem. And it is interesting, as we go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you would, uh, turn back there to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be going through this book. There's, there's an awful lot for us to learn. It's amazing what is written in the commentaries uh, as they look at this book, because how many of you have read through the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay. Uh, would you agree with me that the book of Ecclesiastes is different from every other book in the Bible? I mean, it's different in its outlook. It's different in the ways that things are worded. Uh, it is not uh, what we would call uh, an encouraging book. I know very few people who uh, just say Ecclesiastes is my favorite book. I'd probably say... Uh, maybe we ought to sign up for counseling after church here. I think there's some issues that could be addressed. And yet, there's a purpose for the book of Ecclesiastes being in here. And it's not entirely negative. Uh, and even in the most negative things in God's Word, we still see His glory and His goodness. And one of the things that we have a tendency to do, as, as we go through this first chapter, I hope that the words of Matthew 18 and verse 3, except ye be converted and become as little children, will just stay in the background of your mind, will be a backdrop for the book of Ecclesiastes, because there's a reason why this book is so negative. We, we've often, I've often called Solomon, uh, along with many other preachers over the years, the wisest fool. I mean, he really was wise. But his ending was incredibly foolish. If you would have gone to Solomon at the beginning of his life, as the Bible says, he loved the Lord his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. He sought the Lord with all of his heart. And you had said to him, Solomon, you're going to become a teetering old man that actually allows the human sacrifice of your own children to the devil. Solomon did that. You know, Solomon, I think, would have said, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, remember uh, Joab? How many remember what happened to Joab? He caught a hold of the horns of the altar, and uh, Benaniah called to him, and he said, I'll die here. And so he died holding the horns of the altar. 
Uh, Solomon would not have allowed that kind of blasphemy of his character to be uttered in his court. It would have been to uh, impugn his dignity and his goodness as a king. And certainly Solomon was a great king, was he not? But he didn't end up where he thought he would. I mean, how many of you remember the story? God appeared to him. Said, Solomon, what do you want? Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever thought, I just wish I could find that little genie in the bottle. That I could get some of those things. if, If God would just give me a million dollars. I mean, when I was a kid, a million dollars was a lot of money. Is there anybody in here except the smallest of children that couldn't make a million dollars vanish in just a few moments? I mean, it wouldn't buy you a house on this street. You would have to add to it. I mean, it's just not worth that much. They don't even talk about millions of dollars anymore. Uh, How many of you heard that CVS Pharmacy is no longer going to sell tobacco products? And uh, the figure they gave was it was going to cost CVS $2 billion in annual sales to stop selling cigarettes. I'm sorry, I never thought that CVS would have $2 billion in sales, let alone $2 billion in sales only from tobacco products which makes up a minuscule 3 or 4% of their total sales. So start figuring out you're you're in the trillions of dollars of sales, or hundreds of billions anyway. Things get a little crazy, don't they? What you once thought was incredibly valuable is now worthless. And so, let's look at the life of Solomon. It says here, the words of the preacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, if you pick up any modern commentary written after the 1880s, almost every one of them, without exception, will say, Solomon didn't write the book of Ecclesiastes. We of scholarship understand there's so much different about this book. And it doesn't line up. And then you read on and it says, it doesn't line up with anything that was ever written in the Hebrew language. And so if it doesn't line up with anything, it doesn't fit any time period. The, the verb usage and all of that, these people are supposed to be so smart. They say, well, it really doesn't fit anywhere. Well, how about Solomon? You know, when you step out of the way of the Lord, it's going to be different. How many of you read the book of Proverbs and you get encouraged in the book of Proverbs? And you read things that you say, man, that's going to help me. There's not much you're going to read in the book of Ecclesiastes that you're going to go, wow, deep truth that I'm just going to love and encourage me. I mean, 
it says the words of the preacher. And uh, you'll have to forgive me. uh, My mind is just so full of things tonight. I hope I keep this heading in one direction. But I I read in one of the commentaries, and, and they're trying to act all intelligent by transliterating the Hebrew word, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. My Hebrew is uh, non-existent. Amen. Uh, One of these days, I would like to learn some things like that, but not going to pretend. And this guy goes through and says, "We, we don't know that it's Solomon that wrote the book, and we don't know this, and and uh, actually, you could take that word and you could transliterate it, holeth or something like that. Or you can uh, use uh, the word teacher. But you know, really, the most fantastic word of all you could use is the word preacher. So, huh, maybe our translators got that figured out. You see, the preacher is responsible, by the way, the Greek word for Ecclesiastes is ecclesia, assembly, church. And who was the greatest teacher, the greatest preacher, the greatest uh, delineator of truth, of wisdom for the Hebrew people? was Solomon, was it not? I mean, he gave them all those wise sayings. He brought the kingdom to its apex. There was no king that was higher or more honored in Solomon. And, and by the way, uh, I have no real strong evidence for this, but I, I just believe because of some similarities in the Scripture that when Antichrist shows up, He's going to be a whole lot more like Solomon than he's going to be like anybody else. He's going to promise prosperity. He's going to have wisdom and be able to solve the world's problems and have the world's leaders literally bowing down at his feet saying, you are the one that's going to solve our problems. Solomon had all of those things. People stood in awe of him. If Solomon said something, did anybody go to Solomon and say, you know, uh, actually, uh, we took that to the rewrite desk, Solomon, and some of our wordsmiths were able to put that together in a little more pithy way than uh, you had put it. You put a few too many words and some old archaic expressions. Nobody did that to Solomon. Solomon was the guy that rewrote everybody else. And so when he calls himself the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, here's his sermon. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, if you look in your outline, I copied out the first definition of the word vanity out of the Oxford English Dictionary for you. That which is vain, futile, or worthless. That which is of no value or profit. That's what the word vanity means. So why would you name your magazine 
Vanity Fair. Could I tell you that that qualifies for integrity in advertising? That there is nothing in that magazine that a Christian ought to read? In fact, they actually got the idea for the magazine from John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim Progress, who actually invented a place called Vanity Fair, which was the display of the worthlessness of the world where Pilgrim, who the Christian was going through life, was tempted to get out of the way that he was going to see what was in the Vanity Fair. He says, listen, not only is it vanity, not only is it worthless, not only is it empty, he says, in the museum of vanity, vanities, all of the empty, worthless, profitless things that mankind has known, I have the apex, I have the vanity, the nothingness, of all worthless things. Now that's a pretty incredible statement. And I believe that by the time we get to the end of chapter 1 here, he makes a statement, all is vanity. Now how many of you believe that? Good. I'm in the right place. That would be better represented in the Epicurean philosophy and, and uh, some of the Buddhist philosophies and Eastern mystical philosophies that all is nothing, all is worthless. Uh, the only thing that is, has any value is the thought process behind something. Uh, and, we, and people have read this book and they say, well, Solomon is agreeing with Aristotle and, and, and Plato and all of these philosophers of the world. And, and Solomon is, is preaching that everything is really nothing. It's all just a mist of vapor. Is that true? If that's what Solomon believed, then he'd be disagreeing with the rest of the Bible, would he not? Hello? So... A simple resolution is Solomon is saying I am the vanity of vanities. Everything I've done is worthless and without value. When we get down to the end here I just listed some words in their usage in the book and let's just skip ahead there and then come back. The word I is used 65 times in 13 chapters, 12 chapters, I'm sorry, of the book of Ecclesiastes. Can you imagine that? 65 times. Another 18 times the word my is used. So that's what? 83 times Personal pronouns are used in the book of Ecclesiastes. Could I challenge you if you were to write down anything of the equivalent length of the book of Ecclesiastes about your life 
and used that many personal pronouns as you described your life, you would agree with Solomon that it's vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Because when you get the inward look, let's see, heart is used 34 times. The vast majority, 18 of those 34 times, he's talking about my heart. He only uses the word vanity in all of its forms 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and yet he uses I and my 83 times. He uses the word all 59 times. Have you ever met anybody that just said, everything's rotten, it's all bad, it's all this and it's all that? You know what? That comes... From a very small world view. The world of I and my will take you very quickly to the word all. Because if you can't figure it out, if it's not going good for you, it's good for it's not going good for anybody. What is that? The difference between uh, an economic recession? That's when your neighborhood neighbor loses his job in an economic depression. That's when you lose your job. Um, the entire focus of this book, 31 times he talks about see and seeing. Most of that's connected back to that I and my, what I see, what I understand, my sight. And the word wisdom comes in only 26 times. That's pretty sad for the wisest man that ever lived, isn't it? And so, what we have here is not Solomon contradicting God, but Solomon explaining where you end up when you stop being that little child that is converted and enters the kingdom of heaven. We all have this desire, uh, at least most of us do, that we should grow up and we should be adult and we should... And, and I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that we come to church and people sit up and they listen and they don't bring their coloring books like the little kids do and... And uh, write notes to each other while I'm free. You know, I'm, I'm glad about that. I mean, I'm, uh, we wouldn't want to be so juvenile. But I, I worked a lot with children before I became the pastor of the church. And I, I will tell you this. If you will, and I tell our children's church workers this, if you'll be excited about your story, every kid will be excited about your story. Most of the adults will too, but they'll never admit it. The simple truth of the matter is, when we start that look inward, instead of outward on God, our faith, Stops being objective and starts being subjective. 
And we begin to find out. And I've heard preachers stand there and uh, bemoan the fact that they had planted a church and saw a church grow and saw things go forward in that church because they hadn't started a hundred churches. They were bemoaning the fact that hundreds of people over the years that they were there had gotten saved because they wanted to see thousands get saved. Now, let me tell you something. God does His work His way. And if our attention as that little child is on God where it ought to be, then we're not worried about the bigger picture. We are not concerned with trying to understand all that is out there. How many preachers have put themselves out of the ministry? How many Christians have brought shipwreck, especially to their children, because they tried to understand what is going on in the world and show the people of the church that what is going on in the world isn't as good as what's going on in the church. You know what? It doesn't work that way. You've got to make a choice. Either this is God's Word, or it isn't. You know what? If this is God's Word, does it really matter what, what is that freak's name, Dawkins? Or Dawkins, yeah. It doesn't really matter what he thinks. How many of you heard about the big debate in Kentucky this week? Oh, I mean, Ken Ham, the greatest evo- uh, creationist alive today, debated, what was his name, Nye? Mr. Science, and they went back and forth. And you know what happened? The people that came into the debate hall, this is the uh, article I read, the people that came into the debate hall believing that God created the earth left that way. And the people that came in believing that we're all the random uh, random product of uh, of genetic roulette and that uh, evolution is true left that way. Uh, So what happened? Vanity? How about that? You see, as we read through these verses in just a few minutes, you're going to see that Solomon tried and did accomplish with the great wisdom that God had blessed him with to understand what was going on in the world. And what did it do? It moved Solomon into the world. Now, if Solomon could be moved, how about us dumb people? Now, that ought to scare you just a little bit. Amen? And the same philosophy and the same thought process that's in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is the book of Ecclesiastes is the same thought process and philosophy that I have heard all of my ministry from preachers who are now out in the world. 
They used to be right here. I remember reading a, a, a letter from a pastor that actually supported our church and helped us buy the building. He says, when we used to teach that you should be separated from the world, we were wrong. They actually made that statement. We understand now that we are to build relationships with the world to bring them into the church. Could I challenge you? That never works. The more you understand about the world, the less you will be able to serve Christ. Can I give you an example? How many of you men that are married would raise your hand and say, I understand women. Okay, we don't have any stupid men here tonight. Amen? How many of you ladies that have a husband would raise your hand and say, I understand about men? Now, please don't raise your hand for this one. But how many of you unmarried people have said in your mind, quietly, while I just made these statements, I understand. (laughs) Now, that hits a little close to home, and I'm not trying to be mean tonight. But what I'm saying is, I don't want my wife to understand the fact that I'm a man and men think this way and men understand life this way and to try to humor me and lead me along in life because she understands how I'm thinking. Some women think that's their job in life. I want to challenge you, if you think that way, you will not enjoy marriage. Because marriage is not a place for logical comprehension, understanding, and philosophical thinking. You see, because charity covereth a multitude of sins. Hello? Isn't it a whole lot more fun when she says, I have no idea what you're doing But I married you, and I'm going to follow you. And the man's heart just goes, woohoo! And when he says, I'm not going to try to figure out why you're upset. I'm not going to try to figure out, I, I know I've done something stupid. But there's some flowers on the kitchen table, just go enjoy them along with a box of chocolates. And they're all for you. I'm not going to share them. They're just yours. That's when life is enjoyable, isn't it? Well, let's put this in our relationship with God. You know, we have a lot of Christians that sit around and try to figure out God. God doesn't give you the opportunity, nor does He desire for you to try to figure out who He is. I want to challenge you, you can't. You don't have enough brain. 
God didn't make you with enough brain. Because if he had, he would have had to recreate himself. And he's not going to do that. And so as we look through the book of Ecclesiastes here, when Solomon says vanity of vanities, all is vanity, what he's talking about is his wasted life. Because he was so foolish as to try to figure everything out. And let me tell you, Solomon figured some things out. Let's just start reading. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Now, look at verse 3 here. There's a couple of key words. He's, he's made this statement, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he says, what profit hath a man of all his labor? Okay, again, he's talking about the man Solomon. And he'll go on in other parts of this book to expound upon his great labors. And let me tell you, there is no living man or living group of men that could compare to some of the labors that Solomon undertook. I mean, you stop and you think about that temple that, was, that Solomon constructed. Great stones. Some of them are like 12 foot square. Brother Mike, you remember those little concrete footers you and I tried to, and Stephen moved into the building? They weren't 24 inches square. And they weighed, what was it, 350 pounds each. And you ought to have seen all the foolishness that the three of us did to move those 350-pound blocks of concrete from the front sidewalk here down the side yard and into the basement so we could drop them in a hole in the floor and hold the baptistry up. Think about a 12-foot by 12-foot piece of stone. And yet every stone was cut in caves, underneath the city of Jerusalem with such perfection that they were able to be moved into place without the sound of a steel tool. See, that's pretty cool. I'd like to think about those things, but I'm so glad that I've never had to try that. I mean, I have, I have problems. We have a piece of something here, and you've got to cut something to fit in the hole. And you cut it big. So that when you put it in the hole, you can trim it just little by little so it fits. Because if you cut it downstairs perfectly, you know it's not going to fit when you bring it upstairs. I mean, that's the way we... Are. Solomon had all this figured out, but he says, all the labor, what profit does a man, what profit is in a man, what profit is in his labor? Look at verse 4. What profit is in his generation? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. Then he says, but the earth 
abideth forever. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist people, they love that little verse in there. The earth abideth forever. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, they quote that verse. And they say, see, see there, the earth abides forever. It's not going to be destroyed. Heaven is on earth. It's not in, in, in heaven. Did you just think about what they just said? Heaven's on earth. It's not paradise is on earth. It's not in heaven. I met a guy last Saturday. He was... I passed him a track. He says, oh, I'm a preacher for 34 years. And I said, really? I said, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? He's sitting at the bus stop and went to hand him the track. He looks at me and says, go to hell. And I sit there and I go, okay. I said, I wonder what kind of God you worship and begin to walk out. And he ducks around the corner of the bus stop there as we're walking away and says, there are a lot better places than heaven that you don't know anything about. And that's where I'm going. Uh, God is the... God is what makes heaven heaven. And so he must believe in something greater than God. That means something more supreme than the supreme being, which is, even if you apply the most simple childlike logic, it just comes up as stupid. <laughs> I mean, uh, but that's where people are. You see, all is vanity. He says the earth abideth forever. He's not making a theological point here that God won't destroy the earth someday. What he's saying is people die. Generations pass away. The next generation comes, but they always have the same dirt to walk on. And look what he says then. He says, the wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. Now we could Spend the whole night just on the wisdom of that one verse. Do you know it took modern man until the early 1900s to actually begin to chart the wind. And yet, if we had followed Solomon's advice right here, it, it says the wind goes from the north to the south, turns around and comes back. Uh... Have you ever looked at the map of the wind? Uh, that it, it goes and it comes back. It goes across, it comes back. I mean, the wind returns. How many of you remember studying the hydrological cycle from earth science in the ninth grade? Verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. How did Solomon figure that out? He is telling us things that he understood. Tell you, you have to be pretty smart to figure that thing out. I mean, how many of you felt pretty smart the first time you understood what you read in your science book, huh? Uh, he wrote the science book a thousand years before Jesus was born. And explains all of these things. Verse 8. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. 
how many new gadgets have they invented to save you labor in the kitchen? Every time you turn around, there's a new wrench, there's a new tool, there's a new something that's going to save you labor. How many of you'd rather drive than walk? But if you don't maintain the automobile, you'll be walking rather than driving. There, there's nothing you can do to short-circuit the idea of labor. There is effort involved in everything that you do. In fact, I'd like to challenge you that some of the world has gotten a lot better understanding of this verse than many Christians do. And you got guys like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and, and, and who work incredibly hard. I think it was the founder of Holiday Inn, which may have been a Christian, by the way. I'm not sure. But he said, I've gotten where I am by working half days. Somebody said, what? He says, you just pick which half. He's talking about 12-hour days. Listen, there's, there's no way to get labor. If you think you're going to get labor out, Solomon's already got that figured out. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. How many of you are glad about that fact? Because if it were true, if your eye were actually satisfied in all the things that it saw, what would it stop doing? Seeing? Well, I'm, I'm glad it keeps working. How about you? Nor the ear filled with hearing. You know what? It just keeps going on. It says, The thing that hath been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with, these, with those that shall come after. Now, this is a hopeless outlook on life. But again, why is it hopeless? Because Solomon is looking at himself. He is looking at the things that he's done. He said, listen, everything that's there. He said, I am the man. Vanity. I am the laborer. Vanity. He said that. Uh, I, ha I am the generation of my father and my generation is going to sit and God has promised that there will be no end in generations to the sons of David. And of course, we understand that to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But how many rotten kings were there in the sons of David before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 600 uh, uh, B.C.? And so he's saying... In generations, he said, the laws of nature just keep repeating themselves. Now we come down to verse 12, and he's going to say the same thing he just said all over again. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. By the way, Solomon was the only one that could make that statement because Solomon's son was not king of all Israel in Jerusalem. And so it just kind of shatters the idea that it could have been written by any one of the kings, the sons of David. 
But look at verse 13. I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. Now somebody would read that verse and say, oh yeah, that's my job. I've got to, just like Solomon said, it's, it's something that God has given us. Well, what about, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. Because my burden is light. Now, is this a contradiction? If you choose to exercise yourself in all of these things, let me tell you, you're choosing a life of sore travail. The word travail is pain. It's used to uh, describe what a woman goes through in childbirth. It is hard, arduous, and the idea here is to a degree... Self-inflicted pain. If you are going to exercise yourself, if you're going to be out there doing this, let me tell you something. It's going to take your whole life. It's going to fill you with sore travail. And when you're done, you're going to come to the conclusion that Solomon already came to. That everything out there that's done by man is worthless. In fact, it's a museum of the most worthless of the worthless things that man has produced. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, verse 15, if you've ever done anything in construction, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. I'll tell you what, there is no such thing as a straight plaster wall. It's not possible. And I will promise you, if you get out your, your level and check everything in this building, you're going to find a lot of things that just aren't straight. You know why? Because what's under them is crooked. And you can do all that you want to do, but it's still going to be crooked. If you've ever taken a piece of steel and bent it, how many of you have ever tried to straighten out a butter knife? Or the tines on a fork? How many of you are one screw short of putting something together? And you know what? It's a special screw. They're made in China with metric threads. They don't. You can't go to the hardware store and get another one. How many of you agree with Solomon? It says, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. If it's gone, if it dropped, I remember one time we were working up here somewhere and we had these little fittings or clips that we were using and dropped it inside the window ledge. And Stephen was going, Alas, Dad, it was the last one we had. 
And uh, he said, I'll get it. And so he spent about a half an hour. I said, no, no, just get out of the way. It's time for the master to get in here. And it took me about 15, 20 minutes, but I fished it out of the hole. And we had our part. But I'll tell you what, there's been some things that have disappeared around here that will never, ever be found. I mean, they're just gone. And when they're gone, you're not going to get another one. And Solomon is just making this statement of truth. But look what he says. Verse 16, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart. How many times has he said my heart? I gave my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. This is Solomon's summation of the book. You know what? That little child doesn't exercise wisdom. How many times have my children come up? What's the problem, Dad? And absentmindedly, as I'm working on thinking through something, I'll tell them. Oh, well, Dad, why don't you just do this? And I'm going, son, if I wanted your advice... Well, you just told me what it was. I didn't mean to. Just, just let me alone. Let me, let me think through this thing. We'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually. But you know, the more you know, the more problems you got. The more wisdom you have, the more people come and they say, well, what do you think? And I say, you really don't want to know what I think. It, there's just nothing there. What we've got to do is we've got to get away from ourselves. Back to the Word of God. Amen? We've got to exercise ourselves to be those simple children we were when we got saved. You see, the joy is in letting Dad take care of it. The joy is in letting our big brother, who's been there before us, the Lord Jesus Christ, take care of it. Amen? And as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see a lot of things. And, and uh, tonight, I just, we're just doing a real summary of the whole book. But as we look through this, you know, if you sat down and tried to analyze your life, you're going to come to the same conclusion Solomon did. You have to let God do the analyzing. He didn't call you to figure out how everybody thinks and what they do. He called you to be that little child whose affection and desire is toward 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, and I hope we got a little bit of encouragement from the book of Ecclesiastes tonight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would put in our minds and in our hearts to be that simple child, to remain sitting at the feet of Jesus and stop trying to figure everything out. That, Lord, we would be the obedient servant instead of the understanding judge. And, Lord, we would surrender ourselves to your authority and your direction without having to be told why and how it all works. Lord, we ask that as we study the despair of Solomon, that you would encourage us in the simplicity of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, maybe the Lord has spoken to your heart. We'll just have the piano playing. If you need to slip out and spend a few moments,